Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 41, Pentimento. Well, welcome to History Against the Grain. If your hosts sound different this week, it might be because we are both fully vaccinated podcasters now. Uh, also, leaving spring break, so we're nice and relaxed. How are you feeling, Chris? Well, I think I'm a little psyched out, actually. I read that something like a third of the country has decided to wait on the vaccines because they're pretty sure it's... Um, it's some kind of what uh, mad scientist experiment. And so uh, now I'm psyched out. I thought I was doing fine. But is there anything I need to be worried about, Josh? No, but I will, I will warn our listeners, if, if you hear any mic feedback, it's probably the, uh, the chips that have been implanted in our arms interfering with the, uh, <laughs> with the audio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was already pretty uh, wrecked over the whole fluoride in the water thing. So Right. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I uh, it, it was a it was a strange trip because, you know, I originally went to the football stadium, the, the NFL, local NFL team here, the 49ers went to their football stadium to get the first vaccination and then was informed that the county which had sponsored that had dumped me and that I was going now back to my original health care provider. So, yes, America, nice going. <laughs> well, it's, it's also funny that. You know, being told you have to go back to your original healthcare provider is all Americans are conditioned to think of that as bad news. <laughs> it was touch and go. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. The good news, though, is it is now fully spring uh, and with spring, the new baseball season. Both of us are, are big baseball fans. I know you for you, baseball is a, a, a very productive way of spend your time, um, not just listening to games, but doing other things as well. Yeah, in fact, the last two nights, Josh, uh, I've stayed up to watch uh, a couple of games. Our, our beloved San Francisco Giants uh, are playing now, and uh, the uh, television broadcast isn't coming until about, what, I don't know, 6.30 uh, here Pacific uh, Coast time. And, and, uh, and games, as you know, there's no clock in baseball, so they, no. they go at a leisurely pace. And, and uh, the last two nights have been, uh, I guess, what you'd call – pitchers duels <laughs> so <laughs> even even more leisurely pace uh but yes productive you're absolutely right you should see the amount of grading i get done while the baseball game's on it's it's nice having a little background noise and, and baseball by the way but very much like our podcast in that there is no internal clock we just go on and on and on uh sometimes close to two hours uh baseball a little bit longer but um it's a little disappointing that, that, you know, even with baseball just as background noise, uh, there are all these more important issues now tied into it because of um, the recent move by MLB, and I would say a, a positive move, but, but one worth discussing, to um, boycott, I'm sorry, remove the All-Star Game from Atlanta, where it had been scheduled uh, to, to be in the summer, uh, in response to the new uh, voting restrictions passed by the Georgia legislature. And this has led to predictable uh, outcries by all the usual subjects, uh, suspects, I should say, um, and has um, meant that that baseball, like everything else in this 
wretched country um, is now tied in with this entire culture war that uh, seems to engulf everything we do. Yeah, it's strange, you know. I mean, those who call themselves uh, conservatives, I think it is, Mm -hmm. that uh, they often object to the idea that sports and politics should somehow mix. Uh, We all know about Colin Kaepernick and the, the, you know, the sort of tempest he inspired with what was a a fairly humble, I think, uh, protest and recognition of a black lives lost, you know, to to police violence. uh, That is a simple, respectful kneeling during the national anthem. Uh, LeBron James, the basketball player, was told, of course, to just shut up and and dribble when he expressed uh, his own uh, modest protest uh, over the same police violence. And so now, uh, you know, we have these uh, sort of red staters uh, pretending, you know, to be aggrieved because uh, they've passed a voter suppression law in Georgia, uh, which, according to one article uh, I read, counted at least 16 points of voter suppression in in that uh, recent law passed that would keep uh, most likely uh, black people from voting in Georgia. That is, it was, you know, to, to pretend it is anything other than a targeted voter suppression is, is silly, of course. And so to respond now to Major League Baseball uh, withdrawing the All-Star Game, the midsummer uh, classic, I think as they sometimes market it, to withdraw it from Georgia is, uh, you know, in, in a kind of protest that has once again inspired you know, all uh, manner of uh, faux outrage, shall we call it, on the part of the the right. Yeah, the the typical the typical stuff. I mean, it's it's so insane now that now uh, MLB is is woke capital and and Coca Cola and and American Airlines that these are now all supposedly you know liberal companies, which is so far from the truth. But but the world we live in now, um, you know, these companies essentially try to get on the right side of, of consumer culture, really. I mean, they're not doing this because they're, they're moral, but uh, these, these companies have also expressed their, uh, their disfavor with these new voting restrictions. By the way, only after they were passed, they said nothing about it uh, while it was being discussed and put in a law. Um, and so it has now uh, placed these horrific companies right, that do damage to humans and our planet on the side of what uh, critics are calling woke capitalism, which is a term that I felt bad about even saying right now because it's so ridiculous. But um, yeah, it's it's created another one of these these dividing lines in, in American society where, um, you know, everything is political to begin with. But uh, but uh, this 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 fiction that um, that companies should not get involved in politics, which is how Republicans, how conservatives are now painting this current issue. And, you know, the reason we're, we're talking about this is because like so much in contemporary American life, you can't understand this issue of these voting restrictions. Um, you can't really understand, you know, maybe Major League Baseball's reaction to it without understanding that larger history. And, and this very much fits into a larger uh, story of American history, one that uh, goes back to the beginning, certainly, and uh, has played out particularly over the course of the 20th and 21st centuries. And that's uh, the story of, of Jim Crow. Right, and it also happens to be a week now in which the uh, the George Floyd uh, murder trial in Minneapolis is uh, continuing. 
So there's a, a kind of what a confluence of, of events from uh, sports to corporate America to that uh, particular uh, trial and then the, uh, you know, the, the political uh, sphere uh, in this case involving not, not just uh, Georgia now, but I think you had a stat uh, regarding the number of states that have moved to put forward uh, essentially voter suppression or as we'll call them, you know, Jim Crow voter laws. Yeah, I think it's something like four. It's forty some states. I don't have the exact number, but I think forty some states have have uh, attempted at least to put forth some uh, further restrictions on on voting. Of course, none presented as attempts to uh, to decrease the black vote. But um, any careful study, or even not even a cursory study, would show that these are often targeted efforts to reduce the number of voters, and they tend to be particularly focused on people of color or, or neighborhoods where larger numbers of people of color reside. Um, and it's, um, it's you know, I would say it's shocking, but it's really not. It's, it's keeping with a larger trend of, of American history um, and, and certainly a reaction to our rec- the recent election in, in, in 2020, where uh, the votes of, of large numbers of people of color seem to have tipped the scales towards, uh, towards Democrats, at least in the national election. And the response has been, therefore, to try to reduce the number of, of voters, to make it more difficult, at the very least, for voters to get to the polls and get their votes counted. Yeah, I think, you know, Josh, the only reason it, it might even seem mildly surprising to us after, well, let's say the last four years of, um, you know, of our, of our more recent history in which we've seen a kind of bolder expression a kind of reactionary expression, an unapologetic sort of bigotry uh, that has somehow, you know, enjoyed a vogue, I guess, during the Trump years. Uh, but the fact that we might be still even mildly surprised, you know, it takes a lot to shock us these days, but that we might even be mildly surprised or let alone shocked that this is happening, because that's an extraordinary statement of you know, 40 states passing. And that's on top of the gerrymandering that's been going on for a long time. But, you know, we can trace it back. I mean, we're historians. We like to do that, right? There's always been a fundamental tension within American democracy, even over something like voting, you know, because at the outset of our republic, there were still routinely laws that required, say, property requirements to vote, you know, and and famously not until 1920 did women get the right to vote. But there is a special thread running through American history where uh, the disenfranchisement or suppression of black votes uh, are concerned uh, or, say, immigrant uh, votes are concerned. And so, you know, in a way, as much as we like to project America as the world's oldest democracy or, you know, in the Cold War, it was defender of the free world, that kind of thing. Uh, you could almost say that voter suppression is, is as American as baseball. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point. I mean, just if you just look at the the you know the time, um, so Jim Crow. You know, if you go past post Reconstruction, eighteen seventy seven, up to uh, nineteen sixty five, right when the Voting Rights Act was was passed. That's a longer period of time uh, between the Voting Rights Act and today, right? So, mm-hmm. so in many ways, Jim Crow and these voting restrictions have a longer history in the United States than real democracy, real full democracy such as it is in, the, in this country. And this is you know, one of the reasons why these kind of liberal histories of, of progress and, uh, and, and gradual achievement of, of the promises of this nation 
just falls so flat for us, right? Because it, there is, you know, things can get better and things can get worse, but the trajectory just isn't there, that there's no guarantee that things will continue on an upward path over time. And, and this is an example where, you know, the past is not, is not past, right? In the, in the, the, the famous saying. Yeah, and, it, and once again, it reminds us, you know, that it, in the, uh, in the, at least in the realm of, of political rhetoric, we move almost effortless, effortlessly from the, uh, you know, from comedy to farce, let's say, you know, uh, yeah. it was in response to uh, MLB's, uh, you know, canceling of the Atlanta uh, All-Star Game, uh, or at least, to, you know, the, the promise to move it elsewhere. Uh, that the, I guess, what would you call them, comrades in, in bigotry, uh, the governor of Texas. <laughs> I like it, yeah. Uh, Klansman Abbott, I think, is his name. Uh, the governor of Texas, Governor Abbott, in solidarity with his uh, racist uh, colleagues in, in, in Georgia. And you, you had mentioned, in fact, when, when, they, when the signing, when, when the, uh, Brian Kemp, the governor of, of Georgia, signed the bill, uh, whether wittingly or unwittingly, was done uh, at a table directly underneath the image of a plantation. <laughs> yeah, just uh, a little too on the nose there, Brian. Yeah, yeah okay. So uh, Governor Abbott of Texas, in solidarity uh, with his fellow Klansmen, uh, claimed that the now Texas uh, wouldn't have anything to do with any special MLB uh, events, should there be any in Texas. I don't know what it, what it would be. Uh, but, you know, in case they wanted to hold a, uh, you know, a special uh, uh, baseball event under the auspices of the major leagues, that he, he would see that that was not allowed. And that furthermore, he sent a letter uh, to the president of the Texas Rangers baseball team uh, notifying him that he was no longer going to throw out the first pitch. Uh, now, now I, you know, in the history of protests, uh, I can be moved certainly by Colin Kaepernick kneeling right, mm -hmm. uh, during the playing. Are you moved by uh, Governor Abbott not throwing out a first pitch? <laughs> it's so insane, right? Like, who is that punishing? It's only punishing himself, right? It's, it's, that's one of the best parts of being governor is you get to throw out the first pitch of baseball Exactly. Games. A day at the ballpark. I don't know. Uh, and in his letter, by the way, and, and here's where we tie it back into our episode today, is he claimed that he was doing this because of the what he called the false narrative that had been generated by MLB regarding that Georgia law. Uh, he didn't go into the details of it to say what he thought was false about it, but presumably one gets the idea that he is offended that anyone would think that Georgia law has anything to do with denying black voters the right to, to vote. Uh, boy, I don't know what, it, what passes for offense these days, but so... False narratives. Yeah, that kind of plays into what we want to talk about in today's episode. And and just as a special treat, listeners, if you hang in there with us, uh, if you don't already know, you'll get to hear Josh and I explain our version of Pentimento, which is our episode title for today. All right. So from from the great uh, baseball parks of America, Josh, I know you you guys spent your uh, your your spring break driving through even bigger parks, didn't you? Yeah, we took a little trip to uh, to Western Colorado, Grand Junction, Colorado. Hung out for a week. It was amazing to get away and be out in nature and and uh, and and kind of see again the, the the beauty of of this country beyond the culture wars and all those sorts of things. 
One, one thing we did though, uh, this is on the way back, we stopped in Ra Rabbit Valley, uh, which is right on the border between Colorado and Utah. And there's a little hike there uh, called uh, Journey Through Time, I think it's called. And you can go on this, uh, in this hike, it's, it's extremely, you know, kind of deserty and, and bluffs and red rocks and all that sort of thing. The thing you, ex you kind of associate with, with the Southwest of the United States. But the cool thing that, that you can see in between is every once in a while, there is a um, there's a plaque and it shows you where uh, within the rocks there are there are fossils of various prehistoric creatures including including dinosaurs and so as you walk along you know you see uh, the plaque and you look and there's a, a like a dark shape in the rock and it says well this is a the pelvis for a, a camerasaurus or I don't remember my dinosaur names anymore but uh, and then you go a little further and you can see vertebrae of, of the diplodocus and uh, it's really cool seeing, you know, seeing these things not in a museum, but out actually in nature. Um, but what it, it got me thinking about is a little bit uh, is is kind of a metaphor for for a larger history uh, and a way of thinking about history that we're we're trying to get get beyond. Because you know, you're looking at these these singular bones for these giant creatures, right? The, the dinosaurs, these massive massive creatures, and uh, we're just seeing these these single pieces, right? And so then, what the paleontologists have to do ha is uh, connect those those things together, right? Because they're never they're not finding generally the entire skeleton. They're not finding the entire thing. In, in most cases, they're finding bits and pieces, and then trying to uh, fit them together. And it's very similar with with uh, looking at you know early hominins as well, right? You don't have the entire skeleton. You've got you know the the foot bone. You've got like a part of the wrist and that kind of thing. And you've got to try to recreate what's there. And so thinking about this idea of, of taking these little pieces and then imagining around those, those little pieces, the entire whole seemed to be a, a pretty interesting metaphor for, for thinking about history as well. What do you think about that? Yeah, I like it because, you know, what, what say paleontologists are trying to do is they're trying to edit, you know, using the uh, fossil artifacts uh, sometimes, as you point out, which are, you know, are only uh, maybe few and far between or separated from the original core or mixed in with, you know, uh, other species or whatnot. Uh, they're trying to edit together some kind of coherent story about life on yeah. this planet. Right. And uh, exactly. And, and, and it's about the past. It's about the bigger history, the, uh, the deeper past, obviously. But it's still about the past. It's still a, an attempt to, you know, fashion a narrative. Uh, that will uh, allow us to, you know, understand in some useful, you know, way the uh, let's say the evolution of of, of life on this uh, on this planet, and so uh, you know, but they're they're very conscientious, and it's all peer reviewed, right? You know, and mm -hmm. I'm sure that that you know if in, you know if it were a national park or even a state park or whatnot, there were probably signs maybe at some point. I'm, I'm guessing, or there yeah, often yeah. are, kind of narrating what you were yeah, what, what you were seeing, and so somebody, yeah, is trying to translate that into some kind of intelligible uh, story. And and the good news, you know, I think about it is, as you point out, whether it's you know the the story of our ancient uh, hominin ancestors, or you know vertebrates, or what have you, is that uh, it's seen as you know, an effort of continual revision, 
Yes. And, uh, yeah. you know, as I say, peer review, you know, among scholars, uh, testing hypotheses and, you know, weighing those against the evidence and, and that sort of thing. And so, it's a, you know, it's a fascinating and, and constructive process to see those narratives find their way down. I don't know about you, Josh, and when I talk to my students about this sort of thing, you know, like we do the ancient world history, I tell them, you know, yeah, go ahead and write it down if you want to. But just understand, if you come back in five years, the, the story is probably be a little bit different. Yeah, I, I say almost the exact same thing, but I say if you go home tonight and find this a different story, <laughs> it's, you know, because it, literally you can read something in, you know, in a, in a journal and, and there's been some new discovery that completely changes the story, uh, you know, radically changes the story. And, and I, I really liked what you said about the willingness to revise because that that is so significant um, to the kind of study that that's happening with whether it's dinosaurs or early hominids. And um, and something that's that's I think we can get have a little more a harder time doing when talking about history that seems more closer to our own day. We'll just say um, that that willingness to to revise, or I should say, I guess the willingness of the society to accept those revisions um, can sometimes be harder to establish in fields outside of these these ancient or prehistoric uh, you know life forms like with the dinosaurs, like with early hominids. Yeah, and uh, and that's really the point we want to make with this, you know, because if you don't, if you don't revise, if you don't subject it to this process of testing and review, um, you know, what you end up with was the the Hollywood version I was laughing about in the last episode, the one million mm. BC, you know, where you have, <laughs> you know, not only Raquel Welch but other, uh, you know, humans running around, um, you know, being preyed upon by dinosaurs, you know, yeah. even a, I think a brontosaurus, which if I'm not mistaken, were entirely herbivores, but uh, yeah. yeah, not in the Hollywood version, they're eating human beings. Well, of course, you know, there's a, a huge gulf cr chronologically between the time the dinosaurs go extinct and when, you know, uh, hominins appear. But, but that's what you end up with is a story that doesn't actually really explain anything to you. It may be entertaining, um, you know, from from that kind of, uh, you know, popcorn theater seat, you know, perspective and maybe entertain. But but we shouldn't look to it to answer any real, you know, and ongoing uh, problems regarding our our place uh, in this world, should we? No. And, it, it, you know, the, the problem is that you end up with this this version of of the story, a version of the history that neither really describes the past very well. I mean, in many, many ways describes the past horribly and in a way that's that's inaccurate and uh, but also doesn't do anything to help us understand our present um, and you know if you're not describing the past very well and you're not also or you're also not explaining the present very well there's not much else there I mean you mentioned entertainment I guess you can have entertaining history that is uh, unfactual and and mm -hmm. uh, and unrepresentative but that's not what we want to do and so I think what, what we want to you know move on to and what we want to spend the rest of the episode doing is is you know, in as as positive people, as you all know, very, we're very positive people. Mm -hmm. We're trying to move away from just strict critique, and we want to talk about you know how do we build better histories, as we talked about last episode. That's a continuing process, and so as we move on, uh, you're going to in segment two talk about a way of of recentering uh, American history away from American history, essentially, and and mm -hmm. uh, you know getting rid of those boundaries and and trying to make better sense of that 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 passed um, in a way that doesn't just serve the national narrative, but actually, as I was just saying, describes the past and helps explain the present. Yeah. 
Well, I tell you what, Josh, I think we're even conceding more than we need to when we use an example like some goofy Hollywood dinosaur human movie, you know, uh, caveman movie, <laughs> uh, and say, well, gee, you know, it's entertaining, but the stuff we do, you know, in, in creating truer, uh, you know, more uh, relevant historic, that somehow we're, we're doing something boring. I'm going I'm to argue just the opposite. I'm going to suggest that a lot of what we accept in what I call the standard version history, uh, say, of the United States, is in its own way extraordinarily boring in the same way that, and I use this um, from time to time, as our listeners might recall, that a, uh, a kind of greeting card is boring. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but, you know, if, if, if your wife hands you, you know, on your anniversary, uh, a greeting card uh, that clearly was mass produced, you know, with a kind of a formulaic, you know, text that says something about to the best husband, you know, or something. <laughs> I know damn well I'm not the best husband. If you want to insult me, you know, really, it's our anniversary. Tell me, tell me, tell me I'm this, that or the other thing. It's going to be more interesting to me than saying the best husband. But that's what a lot of the history, the kind of greeting card history that passes as our standard version history does. It creates the familiar icons, the familiar tropes, you know, that are dutifully memorized at some point in our school years or in our popular culture. And that's supposed to stand, you know, as a dynamic engagement with the past. But I'm going to suggest that the version that I want to bring to you today is actually far more interesting, if only because not simply that it's truer, which I'm also going to suggest it is, but because there's a lot more that we might actually recognize in it uh, that uh, is present in our own time, in our own day. In other words, the, the conflicts, the contradictions, the dysfunctionality, you know, the kind of stuff that sells real, you know, primetime programming, right? You know, right. Uh, is the stuff we actually find. We don't have to make it up, but it has then the other huge benefit, I would, I would suggest, uh, the real value added is that it will actually explain to us how we got in this predicament. I, you know, and, and again, in a week where the uh, George Floyd trial is going on still, you know, in, in Minneapolis, you you can't I, I would lay down the challenge, you know, to to Governor Abbott, who wants to talk about false narratives. I'd lay down the challenge to some of these folks to explain why this is happening. That is why George Floyd and the trial and Black Lives Matter is happening in 2021 using only the standard version history to explain it. Do you think they could do it? No, I absolutely don't. I mean, going back to our our, our uh, metaphor about the dinosaur bones, it's like a lot of that standard version history is just taking these disparate bones and drawing a circle around it. And uh, and so you got these bones that are just kind of floating in a circle and it's it's it doesn't explain anything. It, it connects them all, I guess, because they're all within that same circle, but it doesn't describe and it doesn't explain mm -hmm. in any real way. And so what you're trying to do, and I've read a lot of the stuff that you're, you're going to be presenting because you, you, you uh, generously share it with me. What you're doing is you're putting the teeth and the bones and the skin and the, the hair onto that mm -hmm. onto that shape and making sense of those those discoveries, making sense of those those bones, those fossils that otherwise just exist as these kind of floating entities that don't make sense of anything. And all they do, all the old story does is 
present a simple version of it, a simple way to connect them. So uh, no, it's 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 so vital what what you're going to be proposing here. Um, well, let's see if I can lay it out. Thank you, a partner, because you know we've talked, God knows, uh, not only on the podcast uh, a lot about this, but in you know um, lengthy. <laughs> <laughs> text communications and, <laughs> and emails and, and, you know, department meetings, not to mention the old uh, days when we were actually on a campus somewhere uh, and could talk in person. But uh, yeah, so let me lay out what is sort of the, the Hallmark card version. Uh, and I've done a bit with this before on the uh, podcast, but then I want to get more quickly into what will be the outline of a, you know, of a new history. And, and it's not something I'm going to complete here in one episode. Uh, but I would like to carry it on, you know, from time to time as we have the opportunity uh, in our second year now of, of uh, podcasting to hopefully create a more recognizable picture, you know, of, um, you know, from all the fossil parts, as you say, the more recognizable picture that doesn't just lend itself to some Hollywood send up, you know, or some uh, sanitized greeting card, but something that can actually explain, for example, why we are now living in an age of, um, you know, of knowing George Floyd's name. So uh, I go back to uh, the beginning then, what I call the, the standard version history, or uh, uh, to abbreviate the SVH. And the SVH really does represent that, that, that greeting card version of, of U.S. history or America's past. And it's in that fabled telling, the fabled telling of the SVH, <laughs> that you get certain characters, uh, particularly at the beginning, that represent the kind of the American genealogical roots, you might say, that is as a student, let's say in a US history class, you know, being introduced to this. Uh, none more so, I would suggest, than, than John Winthrop. Now, this is the pre-American revolution or colonial past of America. So we gotta go past those founding fathers, you know, um, we're heading down the highway. Uh, we got to bypass Mount Rushmore uh, to get to the early colonial period. And that's where we'll find John Winthrop standing out perhaps as the most recognizable of those early founders. Um, John Winthrop that greets us from the pages of U.S. history textbooks. In other words, the pious Puritan colonizer and ruminator of a city upon a hill. And that phrase should probably be, you know, fairly recognizable to most of our listeners, not because um, necessarily John Winthrop ever spoke it, uh, but because he wrote it down in a, in a uh, was essentially a lay sermon while uh, in transit from England uh, to uh, North America and what would become the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He prepared this lay sermon uh, of of the mission, the Puritan mission, uh, which we often distill in the SVH down to, well, they were escaping religious persecution on the one end and uh, hoping to create religious freedom on the other, to which I can only say no and no. <laughs> uh, but there you have it, City Upon a Hill was rediscovered among Winthrop's. We're not sure he ever gave the sermon. There's no evidence that he did, it was found later. Uh, by an ancestor or descendant, I should say, who was looking up in the ancestral papers 
of the Winthrop family had founded, and then it began to find its way into the circulation of the national stories. George Bancroft referenced it in the 19th century, let's say, but that was 300 years now after John Winthrop wrote it down. So we have to keep in mind the time frame here because typically that early colonial period gets condensed into a few significant firsts. And, uh, you know, it's uh, as uh, one of our favorite announcers, you say it's hippity hop to the barbershop from there. We go from John <laughs> Winthrop and a city upon a hill right to the American Revolution and the Sons of Liberty. but. In fact, there was uh, you know more than a century and a half uh, time period, roughly the same amount of time that separates us, say, from the Civil War. So we're going to slow it all down, throw that that chronology down, and look at it a little bit more closely. Uh, Winthrop belongs in the first rank of the fatherly founders and conscientious patriots, as they were described by one adoring 19th century historian. Another more recent historian framed Winthrop as quote, the first keeper of the New England conscience. Yeah. Ronald Reagan, <laughs> uh, a modern president of the United States, Ronald Reagan doubled down on the Winthrop aura, claiming him as a personal hero, even as he misidentified Winthrop as a pilgrim. You know, the Puritans and the pilgrims, they were religionists from England, but they weren't the same group or the same colony. But for Ronald Reagan, it was close enough. I guess that's the Hollywood production value, Josh. Yeah. Uh, Reagan that's where I first fond. heard it, by the way, is is Reagan. That's that's where I first heard that that term, I think. Well, and you probably heard him. He jazzed it up a bit, right? You know, yeah. uh, taking uh, he loved evoking Winthrop City Upon a Hill meme, gleefully enhancing it with an adjective for a peppier, shining city upon <laughs> a hill. That, that was the Reagan version, right? But the reason all this matters, as I'm going to try to explain, is that in creating these genealogies, you know, these foundational stories, you know, this uh, claiming of, of certain national fathers and then, you know, you know, sort of using them as as in effect, either greeting cards or memes, historical memes. They're easy to to kind of remember. And what you don't really remember isn't that important. You know, go ahead, throw in Shining City on a hill. Mm-hmm. You're close, right? You know, our directive here is to stay sober you know, and, and what I'm going to suggest, follow the money, you know, to get off the pietistic uh, phraseologies about cities on a, on a hill and and, you know, sort of mythologies about religious freedom and that sort of thing that are fundamentally anachronistic. They just don't fit upon closer scrutiny. They've been ginned up for the popular greeting card version. But uh, yeah, they, they fail as actual history. And so I'm going to say, let's stay sober and follow the money. Look, we can even grant that John Winthrop was a pious Puritan, but that in no way should prevent us from understanding that he had more fundamental interests at stake uh, as well. Uh, now, listen, Winthrop certainly left his fingerprints at the scene of early uh, colonial America. Uh, that is... From the time he stepped off the boat in in 1630, uh, fresh from England, uh, arriving in in you know North America's shores and what what we now call uh, New England uh, or Massachusetts, uh, one of the first things that John Winthrop did as the leader, you know, one of the the ostensible leaders of this new colony that would become Massachusetts Bay, is he picked out a 600 acre spread. Uh, tied along the Mystic River, about uh, would now be, I guess, three or four miles outside of Boston proper. Uh, 
in what is uh, now actually the town of Medford, Massachusetts. Josh, you lived uh, back in, in Massachusetts for a time. Did you ever make it to Medford? Maybe. All those, all those towns outside of Boston run together for me, to be honest. But yes, yeah. I'll say probably. Probably been there. Okay. And there's even a Winthrop, Massachusetts now, and we'll come yeah. back to that a little bit later. But uh, so Medford is what it's known as now. And it's just, I mean, now it's just a short drive and it's all grown together, you know, suburban, urban sprawl, that kind of thing. But in the day, it represented the kind of, uh, you know, the hinterland of the Boston settlement. And that's where Winthrop found, as I say, the 600 acre spread that he would name uh, uh, Ten Hills. Ten Hills, the Ten Hill Farm, which for about 36 years will remain in the Winthrop family. Now, how did Winthrop manage to uh, claim for himself Ten Hills? Well, he did so by by virtue of the fact that he was the deputed governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, sent with a, a royal charter from England uh, that gave the English permission to claim land, uh, native land, essentially, that wasn't at that moment uh, actively uh, settled upon by native people. I mean, even even that thin pretext is going to uh, sort of fall away um, pretty quickly. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's a hallmark of English colonial you know imperial thought that if you could manage to say there were no native people actively living on a patch of ground, therefore it wasn't somehow being used or improved in the English sense of the word. It could be claimed. Uh, by the English. So what I would call a great purloining or maybe heist of land becomes now the foundation for what will be the Winthrop interest uh, in the new world, the Ten Hills uh, Farm. And we're going to have um, opportunity, uh, not just in this episode, but as I say, as we extend this story uh, down the line to come back to the uh, history of that particular place. And one of the things, Josh, you know, we said about sort of recentering narratives and, and creating new story forms is that we pay attention to place, don't we? Oh, you got to. Yeah, yeah. And, and particularly pay attention to places that are not just constructed, you know, places that are within constructed boundaries, but, but be willing to look at, uh, you know, as we said many times, wherever the story takes you. Uh, regardless of, of what those boundaries that are on modern maps show you and, and tell you that you should stop or or where you should not be able to continue. Exactly. We're going to we're going to have to reconfigure a lot of the geography. And so I'm, I'm sort of doing it intentionally here because, you know, normally we pay attention to Boston as the sort of figurative city upon a hill. Right. Um, but I, I want to go just outside of Boston, <laughs> just off Broadway, you know, just off Boston uh, to find, I think, a more generative history happening here. Now, it's not certain, as I say, that Winthrop ever delivered the lay sermon known as a model of Christian charity that contained the famous phrase city upon a hill, uh, a phrase that so indelibly marks his pious reputation as America's spiritual founding father. It is certain that he was motivated by the same material interests, however, as the other enterprising fellows who ended up in, in Boston, those who would become famous uh, ultimately as the Boston Brahmin, you know, mm -hmm. the great uh, moneyed interests of, of Boston, the shippers and bankers. And one of them left his great big signature on the Declaration of Independence, right? John Hancock. And it's funny that we do this in the standard version of history. We have this idea that there is a wealthy mercantile or banking or shipping interest in Boston. 
But we somehow, well, we, what do we do, Josh? We compartmentalize things because we keep wanting to come back to that Puritan ground zero and say, no, 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 that's not what Massachusetts was about. Massachusetts was about piety and godliness and Puritan community. And, you know, sure, why not? Let's throw in something like religious freedom, even though that is a, at best an awkward fit. Nevertheless, let's throw it in religious freedom. And then when we get to the Boston Brahmin and we get to the wealth and the moneyed interest, we'll just sort of talk about that as if it's a kind of what, I don't know, separate category or something. It's like your fossil, you know, your dinosaur fossils, you sort of become disconnected in some mm -hmm. basic way. Yeah, I mean, it's and if you think about the Puritans in England, that's they're the mercantile class in, in London, right? That they're the ones, mm -hmm. they're the traders, mm -hmm. the ones who basically build the London Stock Exchange. It's, it's Puritans, you know, uh, at a point in which uh, the Jewish population is still not returned to England after expulsion in, in the medieval times. Uh, that's who's doing the, the business of, of founding these companies and, and forming these, these, these companies and building up, you know, England into what it would be, which is a nation of, of shopkeepers in the famous, the famous uh, description. And so they're the ones going to the Americas. It's not a surprise that they're going to also be involved in this broader mercantile world of not just, you know, what becomes the United States, but a broader world as well. Yeah, that's well well said. And we're going to try to flesh those things out um, as we as we go, and you know, to some extent, we've touched on on these themes before. But we're going to try to pull these uh, again, these fossils together, these bones, and try to make something coherent. Now, in the week of the George Floyd trial, you know, again, what we're trying to do is is create a story, a sense of of the historical past that will actually explain this predicament that we find ourselves in as a nation, you know, not only with, with, with George Floyd, but obviously Black Lives Matter and ongoing issues of racial justice. Um, because look, by comparison with the, with the Winthrop, I said Winthrop left his fingerprints all over early American colonial history. By comparison, in those same historical annals of the SVH, the presence of black lives are far less discernible on their own and not nearly as easy to trace. Uh, it's as if their fingerprints have been wiped clean, that is, of black lives have been wiped clean by history's investigators before all those pages ever made it to the history books. But uh, the thing we gotta know is that fingerprints are no, the black lives are there, and not as accomplices, you know, to the myriad thefts of England's imperial project. When I tell you that there will be uh, black men and women living at Ten Hills, that, that farm that, uh, or otherwise as Winthrop himself called it, plantation that he claimed, uh, you know, taken from native land, uh, uh, that it will itself become home to some of the first Africans living, you know, on the, the Atlantic seaboard. Uh, we come once again face to face, you know, with the, with this, um, this sort of awkward truth about the SVH, about, about the standard version of history, is that it, it does a remarkable job of erasing or otherwise obscuring those who are actually present in the history that it presumes uh, to tell. Uh, but maybe we shouldn't be so surprised by that because you know one of the things that John Winthrop himself you know, was, was very clear about is that the reason he could claim 10 Hills, not just as a legal fact, that is that 600 acre stretch of land outside of Boston, uh, not just as a legal fact, but because as a divine fact, 
the great Puritan said God had sent down a plague that had so limited the population, so so uh, devastated the population, the native people, the native Narragansett and Algonquin speaking peoples of that region, that due to the, the thinning of their population from plague, that is from smallpox and other, you know, old world imports, that therefore the land was available. So when you when you start with that premise, you know, of a kind of gloating John Winthrop thanking God for, you know, uh, you know destroying the native population through plague, we I guess we shouldn't be surprised then that we're going to find other disconnects in the story, including, you know, where black lives are concerned. Yeah, that is one of the more brutal quotes you'll you'll read, the John Winthrop. Uh, God swept away the multitudes, I think is the, the quote, mm-hmm. essentially to give us a space to, uh, to, to settle. And it, it's a great point that when you think of that, you know, if, if Winthrop is in fact this foundational character, then that becomes, a, you know, and I, I, you're going you're gonna to throw some doubt on that, but um, then that becomes a, a foundational way of understanding this colonial project as well, right? That there is, Absolutely. if not genocidal, that it's, it's the whole point is to disappear certain populations so that other people have now the space uh, and, and eventually the labor as well to be able to then develop these, these territories in the way that, they, that, they, uh, that would benefit them the most. Yeah, and I tell you, it's a problem not just of, of storytelling. I mean, it certainly is that, but it's also a problem because of, of the, you know, the extraordinary, extraordinary erasure, you know, and, and the pains that we're taking to obscure. And, you know, we've used the word bewilder before, you know, the bewilderment mm-hmm. in, in the storytelling uh, um, to make us see or not see. You know, in this case, Nazi, something that was actually there, you know, almost like, uh, you know, like a uh, an illusionist might, you know, yeah. his audience. Uh, we we have to come up with other ways of recovering then, you know, those those lives that were so effectively uh, erased. And, and to do that, to see these black lives, let's say, historically, even those who are right there at Winthrop's Ten Hills Farm, we cannot rely on the same forensic tools. I mean, if Winthrop left his his fingerprints there just to carry the metaphor a little bit farther, you know, uh, then then somebody wiped off, you know, the fingerprints showing the black lives that were there. We cannot rely then on the same forensic tools or the same types of evidence used to locate and preserve a white presence in history. There are virtually no fingerprints in this case because so seldom are there signatures or diaries now in you know historical evidence terms, signatures, diaries, journals, recollections, memoir, or almost any first person testimony from those black lives. And, and one of the few exceptions being when those black lives brushed up against white power and required, let's say, a trial transcript of some sort, some solicited testimony simply because those black souls were typically not allowed to handle, let alone author, the documents that became the primary sources for the white histories to be written. Yet they are nevertheless present in that same historical past, no matter how absent they may seem to be in the white authored histories. And to discern them, we need more sensitive historical lenses operating on different uh, you know, different, uh, f- uh, you know, levels of focus capable of detecting, 
even the smallest particles, the trace particles, a magnification, let's say, uh, or, you know, to think of a different kind of lens, one that could pick up, say, uh, you know, an infrared or heat signature of their actual lives. I mean, I'm, I'm talking in metaphorical terms, here, but, but I think it's clear enough, right? We have to use different methodologies. Mm -hmm. At least we know where to look, because as we follow the money, as I say, that more sober path through the Puritan uh, history of New England, we follow the spectral traces of those black lives, whether we know it or not, whether they are acknowledged or not, because of how those lives are almost universally embedded in that money trail. In other words, if we find the trail, we'll find the black lives. Mm -hmm. So now, fortunately, the trail is easy enough to map if we only disabuse ourselves of the pleasant mythologies conjured by the SVH to bewilder and distract us in our pursuit. Let us again consider John Winthrop. Even if we grant all the spiritual sanctities and Puritan pieties attributed him by the SVH, we still find a fuller and truer dimensionality to this man by acknowledging his material ambitions and the means he was willing to use in acquiring them. Look, Josh, here's what we know. John Winthrop had an avid interest in acquiring property and wealth, a fact not in and of itself terribly surprising when we recall his status as a member of the English gentry class. Yet Winthrop's ambition was not simply vested in the tradition of England's landed gentry. He was also acutely attuned to the daring innovations and evolving opportunities of Atlantic world commerce. Before Winthrop had even left England to begin his errand into the wilderness of North America, his son, his second-born son, Henry Winthrop, had journeyed to Barbados to operate what today we would call a startup venture. Only in his case, it was as a tobacco planter on Barbados. The elder Winthrop ultimately soured on his son's Barbados project, but not because it violated his parent sensibilities, but because it was costing him too much money and the, and the tobacco Henry set back was judged by his father to be uh, unsmokable. <laughs> uh, discouraged but not deterred, this was the opening scene in the Winthrop family's multi-generational investment in England's Atlantic venture. Now, no, you wouldn't know it from the SVH, that is the standard version of history, history. The Winthrop family stayed on the money path straight through the Puritan era with four generations of Winthrops looking for the main chance in an Atlantic world built on sugar and slaves. The patriarch himself, John Winthrop, stepped off the sea vessel, Arbella, as I mentioned, in 1630 to claim the 600-acre uh, estate that he called Ten Hills. So it started with a material interest there, that pilfered place, and gave thanks to the Lord, as we said, for making it available. But it doesn't stop there, okay? Uh, Ten Hills would rate as one of the first mainland enslaved labor plantations in North America. And those two processes, that is of Indian removal and enslavement, proved to be mutually supporting. Here's what I mean. While the work of Indian removal continued for the English, and sometimes in the SVH we have this notion that the English were there to what? Convert the native people to Christianity? Mm. You've probably heard that one. Well, they weren't. The Puritans had almost no interest in that kind of uh, sort of Spanish Catholic missionary work, right? right? While the work of Indian removal continued for the English, most notoriously in the Pequot Massacre of 1637, 
Winthrop and the Puritans found a way to cashier that process through the Atlantic world economy, mostly by selling Indian war captives as enslaved laborers to West Indies planters. That is to say, in the wars against the native peoples of North America, the captives whom they took were enslaved and traded off or sold off to the West Indies um, sugar colonies uh, and to the planters there as enslaved labor. Now, observing the process from London, Winthrop's brother-in-law, a man by the name of Emmanuel Downing, wrote to him, wrote to his brother-in-law, John Winthrop, pressing the benefit that Indian captives provided. He said, quote, if it is just a war, the Lord should, if it is a just war, excuse me, the Lord should deliver them unto our hands, explained Downing. We might easily have men, women, and children enough to exchange for Moors. Who do you mean by Moors, Josh? I assume uh, West Africans. Absolutely, which will be more gainful pillage for us, says Downing, than we conceive. For I do not see how we can thrive until we get into a stock of slaves. So this is uh, Emmanuel Downing writing to his brother. It was John's wife, Lucy, who was married to Emmanuel Downing. And Downing continued to handle Winthrop's business affairs in London. A few years before Downing pressed his plan for a stock of slaves, the Massachusetts colony had created its first legal code known as the Body of Liberties, which despite the name made Massachusetts the first mainland colony to legalize slavery. Would you guess that from the Body of Liberties to legalize slavery? Already by that time, Boston and Salem merchants were funding both slavers that is slave ships and community or commodity sales, excuse me, to the island colonies that is selling commodities available in New England, timber, fish and other manufactured commodities to the West Indies colonies who relied upon imports for most of their own necessities. And that was because it was so immensely profitable to grow sugar in a place like Barbados uh, people didn't want to use land for any other purpose. So among other things, they mm. couldn't feed them. They couldn't grow food crops for themselves. But it's here that Winthrop's Massachusetts Bay comes to the rescue by providing weed and fish and other uh, comestibles for sale and trade to the sugar colonies. Now, it was evident in John Winthrop's uh, Dry as Dust 1638 journal notation that the arrival, the first arrival in Boston of enslaved Negroes, as he turned them aboard the Salem ship Desire, took place. That is, in one spare entry in his journal in 1638, evidence of enslaved Negroes, that is, black lives brought into Boston for the purpose of enslavement. Together, Massachusetts and Rhode Island combined to make New England the center of North American slave trafficking in the 17th century. But the money trail Connecting the mainland with the sugar colonies of West Indies was wide and, and versatile, integrated by a variety of mercantile and family interests, including the Winthrop family interests. So let me just do a quick review here of the ways that John Winthrop and his family became uh, intertwined with this Atlantic world uh, economy that was based upon uh, enslavement and sugar production. To a remarkable degree, the commercial opportunities generated by sugar and enslavement were hardwired 
through family and personal connections. The West Indies sugar colony of Antigua uh, was first settled in 1632 by an Englishman, Thomas Warner. Who was Thomas Warner? Well, he was a neighbor of John Winthrop's back in Suffolk, England. Winthrop's youngest son, Samuel Winthrop, who would grow up in Massachusetts, attend Harvard College, uh, will leave for the islands in 1649, convinced that there is in the sugar colonies what he called all probability that I can live a better life there. That is in the sugar colonies, arriving first in Barbados and from there eventually to Antigua, where he would live the rest of his life. That is the youngest son of John Winthrop would seek his fortune with his father's support and approval in the West Indies, in the Leeward Islands uh, of the uh, Greater Caribbean, first in Barbados. But when it turned out Barbados was already pretty much cornered, uh, he found his way ultimately to Antigua, where the sugar industry was just uh, then becoming uh, rooted in the soils of that island. So his plan was to set up as a merchant facilitating exchange between the islands and New England, which is why his father supported this, because John Winthrop was very interested in bringing about a kind of dividend to New England based on this trade in fish and timber and any number of other things uh, that they could produce with these sugar planters in the West Indies. And then extending from there to the Canary Islands and the Azor Islands. For example, Samuel Winthrop's older brother, Stephen Winthrop, another son, uh, Winthrop will have 16 kids, by the way, Josh. Mm -hmm. Another uh, Winthrop's son, Stephen Winthrop, had already established himself as a trader out of Boston with the Azores and the Canary Islands, which were uh, famous for, among other things, the Azores for wine production, and the Canaries as a Tenerife Island in particular, as a hub for a four continent trade. You had European, West African, and both of the Americas involved uh, in that hub trade through the Canary Islands. So his older brother had already pioneered some of this for the family. Uh, but young Stephen, still trying to build up his, or Samuel, sorry, young Samuel trying to build his fortune, found himself now in Antigua, uh, where he worked first as a merchant and business agent with connections in Boston, built up his savings, and uh, eventually became a sugar planter himself. After buying land and enslaved Africans, his Antigua plantation was producing 20,000 pounds of sugar per year by 1660. The younger Winthrop forged a circle of trade with his brothers back in Massachusetts, circulating investments in sugar, slavery, and the various merchantable commodities that made their way through the circuit. In fact, today in Antigua, the northern part of the island, there's still a Winthrop's Bay. Now, that circuit included the Ten Hills Farm established by his father, John Sr. From the beginning, Winthrop had referred to the Ten Hills property as his plantation. Now, we tend to think in the standard version of history, uh, American history, Josh, as plantations as belonging to where? To the south. Absolutely. You're gone with the wind, um, you know, sort of romantic notion of plantations, cotton plantations in the south. But the first plantations in North America established in these northern colonies. Uh, and there's no hard evidence in this case that the senior Winthrop purchased enslaved Africans specifically for 10 hills. It's perhaps likely that he did. We just don't have the documents to prove it. It is clear he possessed enslaved Indians 
who mm -hmm. live there. That is native people. Clearer, too, is that enslaved Africans did labor on the Winthrop farm down the road from Ten Hills. He had more than one estate at a place that was then called Pullen Point. It's today known as Winthrop, Massachusetts, uh, because by the time the old man died and his son inherited the Pullen Point estate, uh, he claimed uh, enslaved Africans as part of the inventory. So the only question was, did they come through inheritance from the old man? It seems likely, right? So right. there, uh, it was his son, Dean, by the way, Dean Winthrop, yet another son who managed the farm with what one historian said was a handful of black slaves, according to that definitive account. In fact, it was Winthrop's granddaughter, Rebecca, who was raised on the Pullman Point farm, attended by those enslaved uh, servants, who later married Jacob Royal. And this will figure into our story later. Jacob Royal, a uh, part of a family in Massachusetts that has made its fortune now in slave trading. So Winthrop's and, and sugar production and Winthrop's granddaughter, then Rebecca, will marry into uh, the family of the Royals, Jacob Royal, her husband, who by most accounts was Boston's most successful and active uh, slave trader. OK, so here's what I want to say about all this. Is this sounding like the city upon a hill to you? Not, not exactly, no. <laughs> there's no hills and there's no city. <laughs> well, I, you know, and I, I, I don't want to leave you hanging on some of this. Um, it was uh, not only that, that, that uh, Samuel Winthrop made his, his career as a sugar planter in Barbados, but remember Emmanuel Downing, who sent word to John Winthrop that he should trade mm -hmm. his captive Indians for African slaves. It was Downing's son, George, who he sent to Boston to live with his uh, his cousins, the Winthrops, uh, who likewise would go to Harvard uh, and, and who, who then would leave Massachusetts uh, and, and go to the West Indies. It was George Downing who visited uh, Barbados at one point for a five month stay, writing to his cousin, John Winthrop Jr. I believe they have bought this year no less than a thousand Negroes and the more they buy, the better able they are to buy. For a year and a half, they will earn with God's blessing as much as they cost. So I guess that's where the city of Pawnee Hill is, eh, Josh? With God's blessing, this would all somehow work out. Yeah, you it's it's go ahead. It's a much more complex story that you're telling, and one that that seems totally divorced from you know what we would generally call U.S. history, right? That that you can't really make sense of it within the boundaries of the United States. Um, it it requires uh, you know pulling back a little bit and seeing all these connections and all these uh, economic ties that made all this possible. That John Winthrop, as the owner of Ten Hills, is is that's not enough, right? It makes sense only when you bring in those West Indian, those Caribbean connections, as well as those broader Atlantic connections, um, where you really start seeing the story as it is. And that's my point. Uh, absolutely. Right. You know, I mean, we if we want to use as our ground zero, a figurative and mythic city upon a hill, we're going to get one kind of story. If we want to use actual terra firma, and in this case, let's say the Ten Hills Farm or plantation, we're going to get a very different kind of story because of what circulated you know, through that landscape. In other words, if we just stood there almost like a historical gatekeeper to see who showed up, who passed through, what they did, uh, what their condition was, uh, we would have a far more complicated and truer 
And I think, you know, for what it's worth, far more interesting because it's more complex and true than that kind of greeting card or, or you know, standard version history. And there's more to that. Uh, by the way, it was George Downing then, the, 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 um, the nephew of John Winthrop and cousin to the Winthrop kids, who uh, will find his own hand there in the West Indies as part of this circuit of trade and, and slavery and sugar and whatnot. Uh, did you know later, Josh, it will be George Downing who is knighted and it is uh, for him that the famous Downing Street in London is actually named. Wow, no, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's more of your fingerprints on, on history, right? Uh, yeah. Well, here's what I want to say just to finish up for today. We said in the last episode, the one of the things we we're going to do is we were not going to fall into the sovereignty, sovereignty trap. I mean, mm. so far, yeah, maybe what we're doing cuts against the grain of a certain mythic version of American history. But that's not enough, is it? I mean, we don't want to just replace the myth with another story of elites, you know, in this case of, of white power brokers, you know, uh, building their fortunes and estates and plantations. Uh, no matter how sort of shocking as it may seem when held up to the light of the, the standard version history, it's not enough. What we need to do, as we said we would, is to bring in then those historical actors who were also present, uh, whose lives also were integrated into this larger story. Uh, actors who wouldn't ordinarily be considered part of that mythic story, uh, mostly because they seem such to be what such flat contradictions, I suppose, of the, you know, the, the principles espoused by that story. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, when you can't explain when you can't compartmentalize, you just, you just erase, right. And of course, right. we're talking now in this case, again, about black lives. As one historian has written about this almost imperceptibly, a complex history was casually erased as though the God of memory had simply closed his eyes, closed his eyes, in other words, to the fact that for every single action taken by these Winthrops, you know, by these uh, uh, colonial elites uh, who are, you know, trying to ferret out fortunes and reputations for themselves from the stuff of sugar and slavery and commodities trade, that every, in effect, every business model they created, every action they took toward that end was dependent on like a, like a fulcrum, you know, like, like a, you know, an object on a fulcrum was dependent on the presence of black lives because ultimately it is going to be those enslaved black laborers, men and women, stolen from Africa as part of that, that international commerce of slave trading, who are going to be essential to the fruition of these stories. Uh, you didn't think it was John Winthrop himself out there cutting the grass at Ten Hills, did you, Josh? No, and I, as soon as you said that, you know, he buys this or he claims a 600 acre estate, the first question I asked was, well, who, who's doing the work here? Because he may have had 16 uh, children, but but I'm assuming they're not the ones, you know, hoeing and sowing and reaping. Um, somebody else was going to do that labor. And, you know, I know a little bit about American history. Um, and so the assumption right away was, well, that's going to be indigenous labor. That's going to be African labor right. doing doing that work. And it's 
not going to be free labor. I mean, and so, right. you know, it, it, you, you, you made the case that, um, you know, we're, we need to look for the presence of, of black lives, the presence of, of mm-hmm. other people in this, in this story, but it, it's more than presence, right? Because none of this is possible. None of this works without, without those other people, those other voices, those other bodies doing the labor, uh, and tying together this entire economic system, essentially. Yeah, it's such a good point. And, uh, and it goes well beyond presence. You're absolutely right. But you know, where the SVH concerned, that's the first battle you got to win. You yes, have to say, Wait there, a minute, yeah. these people were here, you know, and then we'll talk about what they were doing. And that's been such a battle, you know, to try to keep mm. that in the narrative. Uh, well, who am I kidding? I mean, for, for most of, of, you know, the telling of these American histories, you know, particularly from the national period of the 19th century, it wasn't much of a battle for those who were actually authoring the books or writing the histories uh, because it didn't it just wasn't in their what their um, you know, their their implotment of the of the story that somehow those lives would would figure in. Um, but they but they do. And as we're going to see, you know, we have to use all kinds of creative approaches, you know, to not only finding them, but but then but then connecting them fully, you know, into the motive force of this story. And and it only gets more complicated. But think about it, Josh, you know, if I'm going to say that there are black lives, say, at Ten Hills Farm, which there were, Mm -hmm. uh, and that those um, men and women enslaved, though they were, were actually providing the requisite labor to build the estate, to facilitate, you know, the, um, you know, the construction of buildings and, and the, you know, the clearing of brush and, and the, you know, ultimately even, the, you know, the, the, the creation of roads and these kinds of infrastructure things, let's say. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to fall into that trap where I'm going to say, well, well, okay, so we can keep the story the way it is and just give credit where credit's due to black and slave laborers for making the country what it is, <laughs> you know, in other words, right. you fall into that trap of somehow making them complicit in all of this one. In fact, again, they are doing this entirely without having, um, you know, volitionally agreed to it. They've, they've been enslaved. This is a forced labor system. So that's one of the many conundrums that, you know, we're going to have to do or, or to face is to resurrect the personhood and agency and importance of these people without somehow, you know, including them you know, in the screen credits for, you know, who created this mess we're in, you know. So yeah. that's that's part of the storytelling uh, issue. But uh, here's what I'll leave it with a little teaser here today is is as an example of resurrecting or recovering one of these lives. Uh, at the time of the American Revolution, there's a woman by the name of Belinda, and she only has uh, that one name, Belinda, uh, who had been an enslaved uh, African labor, according to her account, for 50 years uh, for the family that only ultimately purchased the Ten Hills uh, plantation from the Winthrops. Her name was the Royal Family, and I'll talk about them in another episode. But Belinda shows up in the historical record just after the American Revolution because the slave owner who claimed her had left. He was a loyalist, a Tory, had left the colonies during the American Revolution ultimately ended up back in England and he left uh, explicit instructions for how those who were enslaved at Ten Hills would be distributed. Uh, He reserved for Belinda in her old age 
the um, almost exclusively the option of emancipation. And so he said that she was to be emancipated and that money was to be taken from the proceeds of Ten Hills to pay for her um, her needs so that she wouldn't become you know, as sometimes happened, if, if an aged uh, enslaved person was emancipated, they would become essentially destitute and, you know, living on some kind of public fund. So no, uh, Isaac Royal said it would be paid out of the proceeds from Ten Hills that Belinda uh, would be uh, then supported, except that didn't happen in the confusion or chaos of the revolution or whatnot, the Revolutionary War. She had to actually go to the Massachusetts Assembly and petition them for what Isaac Royal had promised, not only her freedom, but for an annual payment uh, that she would use to support herself. Uh, and so she did this. She uh, found a lawyer uh, who may well have been uh, a free black person living in Boston, and they petitioned the, the, the assembly. And guess what? She won. She won uh, a decision that the uh, now state of Massachusetts and, and the city of Boston from a public fund would be paid 15 pounds a year, still in the English monetary system, 15 pounds a year at that time for her upkeep. And as it turns out, in her petition, she told about her life, how she had been stolen from Africa, from her family in Africa, how she had labored un uncompensated for 50 years for the royal family. So in addition to this being a kind of freedom petition, Josh, Belinda's petition was also one of the first reparations um, mm. requests uh, and one that was granted. So as we think about an issue like reparations today, there is actually precedent uh, believe it or not, in that time period of a woman, an enslaved, formerly enslaved woman who was granted um, a nominal uh, monetary sum for her upkeep. Now, so I'm just laying that out as a teaser, right? That this yeah. figure now introduced into this story, into this otherwise whitewashed cast of Winthrop characters coming from that same plot of landscape, that same Ten Hills farm who labored and enslaved for decades, uh, will then eventually assert herself before the bar of governmental authority in Massachusetts and win a judgment. I don't know if you recall that from the greeting card version you had in school. I did not see that. I did not see that story, but it's an important one, certainly. And, and the, the, the uh, you know, the part about that is this is the royalist who's offering freedom to an enslaved person, uh, whereas the, uh, you know, the freedom loving Americans are the ones trying to deny that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And even though there was an emancipation law passed in Massachusetts in 1783, it was a gradual and piecemeal emancipation. And, and all except for Belinda and one other person from Ten Hills remained enslaved right into the post, um, you know, revolution period. So, again, mm -hmm. that's something we can come back to later. But I know you want to take us out even a little wider into the world to find what I think is ultimately you know, a very compelling trail uh, of interest that will, again, help us understand what John Winthrop was doing out there in the first place. Yeah, it, we can kind of take our take the story south a little bit, because, you know, obviously in that SVH, you've been talking about the standard version history, the emphasis is always on on North America, right? Uh, English mm -hmm. colonies in North America. But if you're looking at the period post 1492, by far, the more significant part of the Americas was in the South, in the uh, in the West Indies, and then certainly into uh, Central and South America as well. I guess uh, uh, Mexico, Central America, and South America as well. 
And the reason those errors were so significant is for, for a number of reasons, but primarily over, over time, it's because of the discovery of, of mass amounts of silver. Um, and I can just do a, a short version of this because it will tie in to what you were talking about as well. Um, so silver is, is gonna be mined in the mountains of Bolivia, uh, primarily in a, uh, a mine at a place called Potosi, which was uh, at about 13,000 feet in the Andes. Also in the highlands of Northern Mexico, the big, the big mine in Mexico is Zacatecas, uh, which was also a huge source of silver. And the thing to kind of think about here is, is why, why silver? Why would silver be so significant? You, you probably, you know, heard these conquistador tales and, and, you know, read maybe some of the letters of Columbus. Do you ever see, you know, conquistors or, or Columbus or these explorers? Do they ever talk about silver in their, in their writings? Uh, are they going to these places right? looking for silver? No. What are they looking for? Oh, they're looking for uh, oro, gold. Yeah. I mean, the, the famous, the famous uh, pairing is, is God and gold, right? That they're going to, you know, uh, convert the heathens. And they're going to find some gold. And they're very explicit about that. But if you think about the Spanish Empire, while there is gold there, it's silver that becomes the basis of Spanish wealth. Um, as one Spanish priest in, uh, in Bolivia says, Potosi, this great mine, lives in order to serve the imposing aspirations of Spain. It serves to chastise the Turk humble the more, make Flanders tremble, and terrify England. So it could do all these things. The Viceroy of, of Peru uh, in the 1870s, a guy named uh, Francisco uh, Toledo, said, uh, without the mines, the entire commerce of this land would fail. So you have this, this empire that's, that's basically an empire built on silver. <clears throat> the question becomes, how can an empire be built on silver when, as we just talked about, it was gold that was the more valuable thing. And the answer cannot be understood if we stay in the Americas. It can't be understood simply by looking at Europe. It can only be understood if we widen our gaze a little bit. In fact, a lot and travel across the Pacific to China, where in the 16th century, roughly the same moment, the Spanish are accessing these silver mines and developing methods for extracting that silver from the mines, that the Chinese undergo a major economic transformation uh, through which they begin to change their uh, currency system. And increasingly, over the course of the 16th century, it becomes uh, uh, required for everybody in China to pay taxes using silver. Uh, the Ming Dynasty in China at that time was the most populous single state in the entire world, one of the most productive and one of the richest states in the entire world. And so when you take the dense, uh, I'm sorry, the most populous, most productive and richest countries in the entire world or, or empires in the entire world, and you force every single person to now use silver to pay their taxes, what's that going to mean for the price of silver? Uh, it's going to go up. Huge demand for silver, uh, which cannot be entirely supplied through domestic source of silver. So the, the Chinese, the Ming dynasty specifically, begin importing silver from Japan, which at that time was a, a huge area of silver extraction. And then increasingly across the 16th century, more and more of that silver is gonna come from the Americas, either directly across the Pacific, or uh, sometimes first to Europe, and then from Europe around uh, the Cape in Africa, and eventually into the Chinese economy. And so if you start looking at the price of silver in China, if we just go to 1590, for instance, um, one ounce of gold purchased about, I think it's five and a half to seven ounces of silver. At that same moment in Europe, one ounce of gold purchased 14 to 15 
ounce of silver in Europe. So if you think about you know, a European merchant who now has access to silver flowing in across the Atlantic from Spanish America, it almost makes no sense to spend that silver domestically because you simply can't get as much for it. And so increasingly, China becomes this silver vacuum, right? This place to which the silver of the world is going to flow. It's going to come up from the mines and the mountains, flow down the mountains to the ports, and then make its way either to Manila um, across the Pacific or to, uh, to, to Spain. And then from there to places like Flanders and Netherlands and Genoa and uh, the other major ports in the Mediterranean, and then eventually east to China, sometimes stopping in India as well. So it's silver that, that is going to give uh, European merchants access to the markets of Asia. And for uh, the major states of Asia, whether that's um, the Mughal Empire in India or the Ming and later Qing empires in China, silver becomes the basis of their economy, uh, becomes a, a major currency and a major way of uh, collecting taxes and the like. And so we start with silver and what we end up with is this commodity uh, produced in the Americas using indigenous labor, which is now becoming essentially the, uh, the, the basis for economic systems all across. Yeah, I liked what you said, by the way, about the uh, chronology. You said, I think, 1590, right? Mm -hmm. By that point, you have this benchmark for international silver trade with China. That's Remember, uh, Winthrop's coming to New England in 1630. That's 40 years later. Yeah. So all of this, by the time the English uh, colonies are getting established, is exceedingly well-developed, is it not? Oh, I, absolutely. And in fact, it's it's almost going in. By the time we get to Winthrop, that system is almost going in, into decline uh, because of, of economic forces that we can get into maybe at, at some later point. But you start looking at the various pieces of this. And so you start in the Americas, right? There's silver in the ground, but silver needs to be extracted. The Spanish are not going to do the extraction. And so what they're going to do is make use of indigenous labor. Unlike North America, where populations were relatively sparse, uh, the populations in South America, in the Andes, were very dense. And that meant the Spanish had, at least in theory, access to huge amounts of potential labor if they could actually access that labor and, and I mean, in this case, indigenous people around the Andes. So in order to access the labor, the Spanish undertake this massive, ambitious project. I, I would argue it's one of the most ambitious uh, population projects you're going to see in this early modern world. Uh, they take these various towns and villages uh, that, that uh, are found across the Andes in uh, valleys and on peaks and uh, in various inaccessible locations within the second largest mountain range in the world, and they remove the indigenous population from those areas, and they resettle them in larger towns in more accessible locations for the Spanish. Right? So right there, you're moving people all over the Andes, and then once they're in these strategic hamlets, which can be uh, governed and can be um, surveilled more easily by Spanish authorities, then it becomes easier to access those populations, to send them off to the mines, to do the labor of extracting silver, extracting mercury, uh, which is need, needed to process silver, and then ultimately getting that silver across the world. When the silver gets to China, uh, it becomes the basis of a tax-paying system, and it is going to be a huge boon to the, the Ming economy for much of the 16th century. When we start getting to, you know, basically Winthrop's time, though, by the 1630s, 1640s, 
the exchange rates between gold and silver have begun to equalize. So, you know, by the 1630s, 1640s, um, the, uh, the price of silver in China is relatively similar to the price of silver in, uh, in, in Europe. And the result is Europeans become less inclined to bring huge quantities of silver into the Ming economy. And once that happens, it destabilizes the tax system. It makes it more difficult for Chinese to access silver they need to pay their taxes, which is one of the many things that helps destabilize the Ming dynasty. And ultimately, one of the things that therefore leads to its downfall. So we have silver mined in the Americas by indigenous labor who are moved um, across the Andes in order to, uh, to, to do this work of mining the silver. And that labor then ultimately is helping to uh, first build the, the Chinese economy and also at a various point help to undermine that Spanish economy as well. And then one last little connection here, and this will get us back to our world of the West Indies, is that what silver ends up being for European merchants is a way of accessing the manufactured goods of Asia. Um, Europeans famously don't really have a lot of goods that have demand in the major Asian markets, whether that's in India, China, Japan, Southeast Asia, but silver can be traded uh, virtually anywhere in this world. And as Europeans increasingly start going to, uh, to India, both before and then during Mughal times, they find that with silver they can purchase various Indian products. And the thing that most catches their eye eventually are Indian cottons. And uh, English merchants, French merchants, Dutch merchants, Portuguese merchants all begin buying large quantities of Indian cottons, which they then ship partially back to Europe for sale into European markets. But I say partially because a significant amount of those, those cloths purchased with American silver are going to end up on a different continent. Any guesses where that uh, that cloth is going to end up in addition to <laughs> to Europe? Uh, probably Ten Hills Farm. Uh. <laughs> yeah, maybe eventually. But, but one of the big places that's going to go straight from India is to West Africa. According to Kenneth oh, Pomeranz, sure. yeah. uh, according to Kenneth Pomeranz, the silver <laughs> flow was exchanged for various Asian, mostly Indian manufactured products, which then covered much the cost of procur procuring slaves for the Americas. Indian cloth alone made up roughly one-third of all the cargo by value exchanged by English traders for African slaves in the 18th century and may have made up over half the goods that French traders use to acquire slaves. Yeah, that's remarkable. So we've now circled yeah. the world, right? We've gotten to West Africa yeah. and yeah. then the product that's making this trade possible, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, African merchants mm -hmm. like Asian mer merchants didn't want European manufacturers either. They wanted the good stuff and that came from India. Um, and so that becomes the... the, the uh, the other part of this worldwide system that starts to emerge. And the point here is that you can't understand the Spanish Empire by just looking at, you know, the Andes. You can't understand the emergent Ming economy by just looking at, at China. You can't understand the slave trade by just looking at West Africa. Um, that to understand this world that's coming into being, you really have to be willing to, to, you know, again, pull back that perspective and look at the world as a whole see those connections and understand how this whole system works only in conjunction in conjunction with all these different places and never just by looking at one region in isolation. Man, I think we've done a, a couple of things uh, here today, Josh, I hope. Uh, maybe it's uh, pure hubris, but uh, <laughs> first of all, we've, we've laid some groundwork for dispensing with these silly greeting card. Uh, and, and let me be more formal. It, 
exceptionalist histories. You know, yes. in other words, it's it's awfully difficult to go from what we just said back to that city upon a hill that has, you know, the, the Puritans emerging directly from the mind of a Protestant God or something, you know, on, you know, on Cape Cod or whatever. Um, there's a history to this, <laughs> I'm happy to say. And it's a far more, uh, you know, not only complicated, but global history. So it's a less bounded history. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, and, 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 you know, we're, we're going to finish up here uh, with a short outro segment. But tentatively speaking, based on what we've suggested today, do we have a better chance of understanding George Floyd? I think so. I mean, it's a step in the right direction. And it begins with the willingness to, to see the world as it was, as opposed to the world that you want to be uh, or that you, you want to imagine it was. Um, so, so looking at that world honestly, uh, without those blinders on, is, is a huge first step in, in trying to understand you know, our contemporary issues, including, uh, including George Floyd. I so appreciate you using that example of uh, sort of the movement, the removal and movement of human populations in the Andes. Uh, among the native peoples, you know, by these Spanish, uh, you know, imperial uh, forces, uh, because we're talking here, uh, not to put too fine a point on or anything, but, you know, we're talking here about the policing of populations, the subjugation of populations, um, the, uh, you know, the deep exploitation of populations, you know, for the, the bottom line profit motives of, of these powerful empires. And, you know, when we when we begin to frame it in those terms, as opposed to the more mythic, more exceptionalist, you know, stories that we uh, we hear. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think we, we start to see how this legacy of um, what would you call it, you know, of uh, of, of inhumanity. Yeah. Uh, yeah, how it, uh, it, it continues to, uh, you know, to haunt us in some very, very basic ways. I don't want to lose control, but I can't cramp my space to grow. Comfort stubborn gets us through. I got so much left to wonder. So as we head into our, our last segment here, I wanted to share a quote from a, a story that we've mentioned before on the podcast, and that's Felipe Fernandez Armesto, a very idiosyncratic, interesting thinker and scholar has written a lot of, uh, of, of books and, and, and important pieces about particularly world history and, and the broader world. But he has a book just titled The Americas. It's his attempt to, to write the history of the Americas in a short, uh, about 200-page volume. And right in his first page of this, he... Uh, has something really, I think, important and relevant to say about about the Americas, um, and this fits into to your, your the story you were telling about Winthrop and the Puritans and our our need to to see that history within this broader sphere rather than just within the logo map of the United States. Armesto says, like Europe, America is a Humpty Dumpty continent. It has to be painfully reconstructed after the ravages of nationalism, across the fissures and fractures between which rival identities have formed. Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, uh, first of all, uh, because he brought in Humpty Dumpty, you know, and it <laughs> reminded me of our uh, of our dinosaur fossils uh, earlier in the episode. You know, this idea of putting the pieces together 
uh, of a narrative, you know, the, the broken pieces are shattered or lost or, or uh, misremembered pieces and trying to pull them back into get, uh, something like a coherent picture I like a lot. And I think he's also right on about, you know, the strange sort of uh, um, kind of a, a flip flop effect you get, you know, when you look at the history of the, of the Western Hemisphere, because yeah, uh, at, at the point we're talking the early colonial, uh, early modern period, the, the locus of power, the locus of, of, of wealth and, and dynamism was that, uh, you know, that, that, that West Indies, um, you know, uh, uh, island expanse, those sugar colonies, uh, Barbados, you know, was, was wealthier, you know, a little fly speck of an island, right, was wealthier. Uh, from its sugar production uh, in the late 17th and early uh, uh, 18th century, then all of uh, England's other island and, and colonial holdings combined. Uh, in that sense, the, the, the North American, you know, Atlantic seaboard was almost a kind of a backwater. And yet now in our own time, of course, you know, with the subsequent uh, history, uh, we get this, um, you know, this kind of uh, geographic, shift such that uh, th those roles have been somehow reversed. Well, uh, okay, but then in writing of the history, you get that strange transference as, as well, so that the history becomes retrofitted as if the North was somehow always the locus of power or the, uh, the focus of some kind of geographic centrism or Something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. And, and something that he gets into later in the book, he says, you know, in trying to tell the story of the Americas, part of the problem is the, the huge shadow cast by, you know, the contemporary United States, the 20th century United States, I guess we can say. He says that the heart of this, that story is the late emergence against the long run of history of a hegemonic state, which became a superpower in the North. And and what that does, that makes it so hard to see the world as, as it actually was in the 16th century, in the 17th century, really through much of the 18th century as well, when, when the wealth and the power didn't lie in, in the, the English colonies, but lay, as you said, in the West Indies, and then even more so in, in the Spanish Empire and the Spanish Imperial mm -hmm. Holdings in Mexico, in Central America, and in South America, where, as I said earlier, the silver came from, the wealth was produced, and the power was built. Yeah, that's really critical because unless we recognize that, you know, what we're left with is a is a picture of something that is superimposed, you might say, over another picture, mm -hmm. right? And that yeah. would be the picture of sort of, you know, the kind of ethnocentric, uh, you know, picture of the United States as somehow at the, you know, the center or the, the historical font, you know, of the Western world. Uh, but that's a superimposed picture, as you say. Uh, and the problem with it is not only does it distort the history then, but it doesn't explain to us then why we're in the, the straits we are today, as I've mentioned, in the, you know, with the, say with the George Floyd trial. Uh, but if you if you peel back that that layer, uh, then you start to understand. I tell you what, Josh, you know, another hag miracle, I think, because before we were prepping this episode, I happened to read a, an obituary in the New York Times of an Italian uh, who died in recent days, a man by the name of Gianluigi Colalucci. Great name. Uh, died at age 91. And if the name doesn't just jump out at you, uh, it's probably understandable. But you'll recognize, I think, what it was that Mr. Colalucci uh, was known for. He was the head of the Restoration Project 
back in the 1980s uh, involving the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo's famous ceiling uh, 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 mural. And uh, I can recall at the time the photographs that were coming out you know, of, of Italy showing that restoration project, which, by the way, took 14 years. It apparently only took Michelangelo uh, to do uh, four years to do those remarkable mm. uh, ceiling frescoes, right, that depict the various sort of, you know, pivotal biblical scenes, including the famous creation moment. And, uh, and so once they began the restoration and pulling away what had been, you know, centuries of soot and grime and atmospheric uh, elements, including uh, the hot breath of tourists, <laughs> you know, from below on the floor, all rising up to uh, kind of, uh, you know, fog over this great artwork. Once they started their, their restoration, it was a stunning, really revelation of the work, uh, just the colors alone, the, the vivid and sharp color tones uh, that automatically had people reassessing Michelangelo, who was obviously a recognized, you know, Renaissance master, but even reassessing now as a master of of color tone and, and these sorts of things. It really does kind of change art history. But hey, look, not everybody was thrilled, believe it or not. Some critics found Michelangelo's true colors garish, <laughs> too colorful, uh, said the cleaning was uh, the restoration cleaning was actually damaging the work somehow. And they contended that Michelangelo had never uh, meant for these things to be seen this way, that he had used different uh, fresco processes and had deliberately uh, fogged over some of the, the colors. Uh, and that therefore, uh, you know, these critics felt uh, that somehow he was being misrepresented, Michelangelo, that the work was being misrepresented. And uh, that, you know, that somehow the truth was now being obscured, the truth about the work. Um, you know, as Fabrizio Mancinelli, who worked with Mr. Colalucci, said, we just removed the dirt. <laughs> right. We didn't remove Michelangelo. But I don't know. I found in this something of a, uh, an analogy or, or perhaps, uh, you know, something almost metaphorically true about what we've been discussing is that... Uh, you're not always rewarded, right, for your labors if what you're doing is going into the past to find out how something actually was. So this this actually relates then to our, finally, to our episode title, uh, Pentimento. Uh, and Pentimento is defined by, by the Oxford English Dictionary um, as uh, something in painting where a trace of an earlier composition or of alterations has become visible with the passage of time. And and that's really what we're, we're talking about here is, is trying to uncover you know, what was underneath. And, and often when you do, like in your example, the Sistine Chapel, what's revealed is something more colorful, more interesting, more vital in many ways. Uh, you, you you told me that, that one of the things that was uncovered is a lot of the male figures were unclothed and you could see genitalia and that sort of thing, which was one of the things that, that shocked uh, those who observed the, the restoration. Um, and maybe that's a, a, a good uh, example of what becomes clear now is not always something that, that the critics want to see, but something that represents the truer nature of, of that past. Yep, I really like that, you know, because you get this superimposed image over the top of something, whether it be, you know, the the moral censors of the Vatican placing, you know, loincloths sort of strategically over the genitalia of, of the mostly male figures 
in the uh, Michelangelo works. You know, or in the case of the SVH, we can extend this a little bit, you know, as sort of the, 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 the racial censors, mm -hmm. you know, placing the, the covers over black lives, over native lives, um, you know, and, and to go into restoration, in this case, historical restoration, let's call it, we're restoring narratives, you know, that originally would have been far more dynamic not to mention far more color, colorful. I mean, literally so, right? As you begin to restore black lives and native lives, you know, to to the narrative. So I think there's a lot of food for thought and that sort of thing. But, in, you know, in any event, what we're saying is we're always in history, I think, better served by knowing that complexity, you know, that polychromatic mm. uh, complexity with all its contradictions you know, with all its um, failed promises, what have you, we're far better off because it goes a long way. That kind of truthful rendering of something goes a long, long way toward explaining something like, well, the George Floyd trial happening in our country right now and what Governor Abbott would call a false narrative turns out to be an act of, of what? Historical restoration. That's what we're here to do. This has been episode 41 of History Against the Grain, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening.